This episode of Gunblog Variety Cast brought to you by LawofSelfDefense.com. Go to LawofSelfDefense.com forward slash variety to learn about your state's self-defense laws. Sign up for one of their online or in-person seminars or buy the book Law of Self-Defense and get 10% off when you use the discount code variety at checkout. That's LawofSelfDefense.com forward slash variety. Sit back, relax, and take a ride with us on the Gunblog Variety Cast, episode 93. Welcome back to the Gunblog Variety Cast. I'm Sean, and I'm joined as always by Adam. How are you doing, Adam? So, I had Death Wobble this week. So maybe last week I might have talked about it. I thought I had death wobble, but that actually turned out to be kind of sort of maybe sick wobble. Imagine hitting 100 speed bumps in like a 10-foot space at 75 miles an hour. That's what just happened to me. Oh, my. Luckily, I was able to fix it just by getting new tires, which I needed anyway. So my ball joints destroyed my old tires, made them out of balance, and then I had death wobble from that. So if you ever get death wobble, try balancing your tires. I was like, I thought you were like you were sick, but no, nope. like the same thing in the Jeep. Like, yeah, <laughs> you have the same sort of thing on a motorcycle when like you have like your shaky, like a head shake on the front end of your motorcycle. And it ends up being like, like pilot induced oscillation in an airplane. Like when the front end of your motorcycle starts shaking and like you're trying to hold on to it and you just end up shaking back and forth and it throws you off the bike. Yeah, pretty much. You cannot see your gauges when this thing is happening. Your whole body is vibrating. You're bouncing up and down. If you're if you're not uh, buckled in, well, <laughs> well, Sean, uh, we got some hate mail. Actually, some hate voicemail. Sean, dearest cultural illiterates, during Adam's fun with headlines segment of episode ninety-two of the Gunblog Variety Cast, at the twenty-five minute and fifty-two second mark, Sean says, "Um, this is hardly Sinclair Lewis in the jungle, isn't it?" Now. If you had paid attention to English class in high school instead of sleeping through it, you would have known that it was Upton Sinclair and not Sinclair Lewis who wrote The Jungle, the 1906 novel which brought public attention to the unsanitary conditions of the American meatpacking industry. Gosh, if only you had access to some sort of way to quickly and efficiently research your bon mot before you uttered it. Perhaps some sort of online utility that has access to, oh, I don't know, a figurative Google of information? Since you didn't bother to do your due diligence, here is the difference between the two men. Upton Sinclair wrote muckraking novels, was an unpleasant man described by Time magazine as a man with every gift except humor and silence, was an outspoken socialist, and won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Sinclair Lewis, on the other hand, wrote satirical novels, was known for his wit and humor, briefly worked at Upton Sinclair's socialist colony before depicting him as a political nutcase in the novel It Can't Happen Here, and won the Nobel Prize in Literature. I am deeply disappointed by this error on your part, and expect a full and immediate retraction. Yours, etc., Miss Erin Siobhan Pellette who actually stayed awake during English class. Thank you very much. Well, okay. Upton Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis, Lewis Carroll, Carroll Shelby, whatever. We're going to get started with a tactical dog and fitness report. 21.1 dog walking miles, and I've finally gotten three spin classes in one week. It's the first time since the move I've been able to do that. Well, I am still kind of recovering from my sinus issues last week. Uh, in fact, I thought last night I was going to have some strep throat today. Luckily, that's not happening. Uh, so didn't really want to, you know, tempt fate by getting on the treadmill or doing anything strenuous more than, you know, walking to the refrigerator and back. I'm starting to think that your body just doesn't want you to exercise. So you, you know, just get sick whenever it's like. I really think that that is true. We're taking over. Aaron and I went to the NRA annual meeting. Aaron. 
What should we call this? It's the Weedy and Pony Show. Yeah, that's it right there. The Weirdy and Pony Show with your hosts, Weird and Aaron. Let's get started. Aaron and I were at the NRA annual meeting and we are way too tired to do our regular segments. So we thought we'd come in and do a recap of the show. So why don't we start off with what cool guns and gear we saw. Okay, I found a lot of cool things at the show, both gun-related and prepper-related. And uh, I'm going to try not to enthuse too much about all the nifty swag I came back with. But some of this stuff is just so dang cool. Uh, The first thing I found are some gloves by a company known as StrongSuit. And I know most people are going to say, oh, they're gloves, they're boring. But okay, I have tiny hobbit hands. And whenever I put gloves on, there's at least a quarter inch between the fingertip and the end of the glove. These gloves, and and they're shooting gloves, and so they're breathable, and they've got the grippy stuff on the palm, and they've got the suede on the back of the thumb where you can wipe your, your brow. But these things actually fit me. I mean, they're extra small, but I put them on, and I can actually pick things up, and it's fantastic. I actually picked up a pair of the same. I picked up their winter gloves that are the neoprene. Yeah, yeah. Neoprene ones because I live in Massachusetts and my club does have an indoor range, but it's an indoor range. But we also have an outdoor range that's open year round and it is really, really cold. And I wanted a nice snug fitting pair of warm gloves so that I could shoot, especially since I shoot a lot of 1911s and they've got very small trigger guards. They're not like the gigantic HK trigger guards, which are really the one thing I like about HKs. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but aren't they just the best things ever? They are super duper duper nice. I mean, I'm I'm not really going to know till it gets super duper cold, but I may end up playing around with them a bit more. I'm kind of tempted not to unwrap them just so I don't lose the tag so that I can remember to do a full review of them when, when, when the winter comes. Right. But yeah. I was super enthused by them and I think I picked them up for like, tw- I think they, he took, it was like 25 bucks. Well, I got mine for 20, but mine aren't the insulated kind. So that makes sense. Yeah. So I know, no, I think it was 20 bucks because he didn't give me any change. Yeah. Okay. So all of my segments are going to be, uh, I was, I, I drove down with, uh, Ryan Machad from handgun radio and we did a whole bunch of YouTube videos and interviews with some various people. And this one was just awesome. Mostly because the, uh, the proprietor Gary, oh my God, was he a people person? It was honor defense, the honor guard pistol. And these are little small single stack nines, which are just like all the rage these days. But what's really neat is it's built off of a chassis system. So I guess there's going to be some some larger calibers, larger uh, larger frames and stuff coming in, coming in the future. But specifically, I've got a video of him field stripping this gun. And if you watch the video, you'll see a little bit of uh, a, a little bit of behind the scenes. Watch when he gets the time read off. He's got a look of frustration after we finish the video. He said, "Do you want to do it again? I bet I can shave a couple seconds off." But he was able to tear this gun completely down in in like around 10 seconds. Nice. No, they're just, they're neat little guns. They're really well made and they're at a reasonable price. So it's, yeah, it's a fun little carry gun. So speaking of guns, uh, there was one that I saw that it's, it's very weird, but I love the application because I have elderly parents and uh, Sebastian in one of his blog posts took some great pictures of it. And this is a single shot 38 done in a lemon squeezer style and it's designed for people who have some sort of handicap or deformity or otherwise can't use a regular pistol you grip it in your palm with a barrel extending between your middle and ring fingers and with those fingers you press down on the safety and then you've got a trigger on either the top or the bottom so you can trigger it with your thumb or if you don't have a thumb you can bang it on a table or things like that and it's in 38 caliber, and it has to be in 38 because the uh, rim of the cartridge is what holds it in place. You just press a button, and the barrel swings out, and you just drop the round in, and the rim keeps it in place. And that's why it has to be rimmed. Even though it's a 38, the way that the line of recoil goes, it goes straight down the arm. And so that should make the recoil a lot more manageable for people who are uh, handicapped or weak. And he also made a rifle version of it with a longer barrel and a folding stock. And for people like you and I who have perfectly functional hands, we don't care. But for someone who is injured, who is handicapped, who doesn't have a whole lot of strength, this is a way for them to arm themselves rather than be at the mercy of predators. And one of the neatest things that I heard about this was that because it doesn't fit the typical ATF guidelines of what a pistol is, 
they were crawling up this guy's rear saying, it's not a pistol, it's an any other weapon, and you have to register, and you have to do all this business. And this guy, he actually isn't a gun manufacturer. Well, I guess he is now, but his main strength lies in, I think he makes medical devices, but he knows how to navigate bureaucracy. And he looked at their request, and he used his knowledge of a bureaucracy, of OSHA, of things like that. And he replied with, well, I think you'll find that according to the American with Disabilities Act, this actually qualifies as a medical device. And so th that story, and I hope it's true, it has that, that wonderful frisson of, no, 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 screw you, ATF. You get to choke on your own red tape. And I just... I love the story. It makes me jump up and down and clap my hands in pixie-like glee. But also just the concept of here is a pistol for people who are not physically perfect. I love that. It's super cool. You know, I met him at my very first NRA show back in Charlotte, North Carolina, back in 2010. And yeah, no, he's absolutely wants to pursue this as a medical device for it because it is essentially a firearm for those who have physical handicaps. And that's just a brilliant design. And good for him. So next up, I've got just something that I have always been lusting over, and that is uh, the Turbo Manufacturing Pistols and Rifles. And this guy essentially just does old the old fashioned the stuff they don't do anymore you know they say they don't make them like that anymore he makes them like that he does like the more traditional bluing he does color case hardening and he'll do new manufactured guns but he'll also do refurbishing of of older arms so just have a look at the video it's just amazing if you haven't seen the turnbill stuff it's really just awesome for especially if you like collecting oldie moldy guns and just seeing like the old bluing and all that they can still do that just most people don't well speaking of old guns and this is something i talked about oh, about a month or so ago did you happen to see the working reproduction of the stg 44 the, the sturmgewehr i did see that that is a really cool rifle it's a heavy sucker isn't it oh, oh my god the only thing that i have ever handled that was heavier than this was the uh was the rifle used by uh tom Selleck and quigley down under that that thing probably weighs maybe five or six more pounds than this this stg 44 clone oh i have the jellies now you can get it in the standard i think it's eight millimeter kurtz mm -hmm. But if you don't want to break the bank on a boutique round, you can get it in other calibers. And once you buy the rifle, you can pretty easily buy the, the barrel and the other things just as add-ons. You can get it in 223, and it'll take uh, standard magazines. Woohoo! You can also get it in 762 by 39, and you can also get it in 300 blackout. Which I've heard is probably the most equivalent to the 8mm Kurtz. You know, I've never shot it, so I wouldn't know. But it's just, it's this, well, I don't know how rugged it is, but it sure seems rugged. It, it is built like, like a little brick schoolhouse. And you buy it, you have the capacity to fire four cartridges through it, three of them readily available. And I just think that's fantastic. I also like that you can go from something that looks like it should be a prop for a World War II movie to... A really kind of steampunky goofy where you can put like an M4 stock on it and put like a railed uh, forearm and all that stuff is you can go as nuts as you want with it because of its modular nature. Oh, yeah. Now, this one, I don't know if you got a chance to see this, but Cabot Arms, who makes some really just insanely well-finished 1911s. They've really gone nuts with like high polish and just high quality. They're really, they really make heirloom 1911s. But they got their hands on a seven-pound iron and nickel meteorite. Oh, the meteor gun! Yeah, they took. They call them. I think they call them the Big Bang 1911s. And they they took they they took this meteorite and they they scanned the meteorite so they could have as little waste as possible. And they made a pair of 1911s. One left-handed, one right-handed. They have they make mirror image 1911s. So two mirror image 1911s and a pocket knife, all made out of this meteorite. Yeah, I saw the pictures of them in, in glorious high definition. And yeah, they're beautiful pistols. But did you see those grips? Those look hellishly uncomfortable. 
I'm not a huge fan of like the high polish grips on on a 1911. Oh but no no, the, these weren't high polished. The ones I saw, they actually have pits in them. Oh oh yeah, it's 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 got some of the yeah some of the meteor bark, some of the and meteor stuff texturing, like that. and that. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe if I picked it up, it would feel great. But ooh, that looks uncomfortable. These things were designed. They're full shooting guns, and you can shoot them. They're. It's not like they are non-functional or very. They said that the the metal from the meteor is a little bit softer than normal, and you can't heat treat it because the moment you heat treat it, you lose that beautiful pattern. But they say it should survive at least reasonably well, even to somewhat heavy shooting. But Really, let's face it, that's not what you're buying these guns for. Yeah, a gun like this, you don't shoot. You you take it to barbecues or put it on display. Yeah, this is, a, this is really a work of art. This needs to be hung on your wall. By now, you might have heard about Ben Rhodes, a failed novelist turned foreign policy expert who's convinced the entire liberal press corps to become propagandists for Obama. Nikki's here to tell us more about it. Nikki. A few weeks ago, New York Times Magazine ran a long article on President Obama's Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications, Ben Rhodes. In this piece, Rhodes basically admits that the administration misled Congress, the public, and the press about negotiations in the Iran deal. We discussed the Iran deal a while back, so we don't need to go into that today. But I'm curious about the fallout from the interview. What is going on? Oh man, you know, I know everyone in my office read that article with our jaws hitting the ground. Aside from the fact that it was, oh, so obsequious, oh my god, I'm actually also amazed that the White House allowed it to run in that form. There was so much admitted deception that Congress decided to investigate, and Rhodes actually thought himself above accountability to the people and has invoked privilege as his reason for refusing to appear before the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee to address the fallout of his interview with the Times. It's amazing to me. This guy basically revealed all the dirty tricks, lies, and obfuscations that went on during the Iran deal negotiations to the New York Times, but now he wants to claim privilege. Yeah, no, I don't think so. So what kind of revelations did Rhodes helpfully provide the Times? Other than admitting that the White House used surrogates such as the Plowshares Fund to pay off media outlets such as the National Public Radio in hundreds of thousands of dollars to promote the Iran deal, Rhodes actually admitted that the administration worked not only with NGOs and proliferation experts, but even friendly media outlets to promote its deal on Iran. That doesn't sound like the Obama White House misled the American people, does it? Now, to be fair, Plowshares has given NPR oodles of cash over the past decade. The AP quoted Plowshares spokeswoman Jennifer Abrahamson as saying it's common practice for foundations to fund media coverage of underreported stories. Now, she claimed that funding doesn't influence the editorial content of their coverage in any way and says they wouldn't want it to either. Plowshares has funded NPR's coverage of national security since 2005, according to NPR. Plowshares' reports show at least $700,000 in funding over that time. All grant descriptions since 2010 specifically mention Iran. But considering NPR gets taxpayer dollars through Congress, it's a bit concerning that an agency used by the administration to push a controversial foreign policy deal is giving NPR hundreds of thousands of dollars to push the message the administration wants it to push. It's also interesting to note that Congressman Mike Pompeo told the AP he repeatedly asked NPR to be interviewed last year as a counterweight to Democrat Adam Schiff of California, who supported the deal and regularly appeared on the station. But NPR refused to put Pompeo on the air, he says. The station said it has no record of Pompeo's requests and listed several prominent Republicans who were featured speaking about the deal or economic sanctions on Iran. That sounds a bit like a he said, she said. Sure, it does. But when you have a senior administration official, one who claims to have a so-called mind meld with the president, basically arrogantly admitting to a Times reporter that the administration not only used surrogates like this Plowshares Fund and other NGOs, as well as friendly media to mislead the so-called morons he claims work in the foreign policy establishment, as well as the American people, 
the he said becomes a bit more believable. Okay, so Rose is a jerk. What other revelations were there in his interview? Well, this wasn't in the interview, but it would certainly give you an idea about just how big a jerk Rhodes actually is. After this interview, Judicial Watch went digging into Rhodes, and in an email obtained by Judicial Watch and sent by Rhodes on Friday night, September 14th, 2012, Rhodes appears to have outlined the administration's strategy to handle the Benghazi attacks before holding a phone conversation with now National Security Advisor Susan Rice. She was U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. at the time. The second goal is especially telling. It says to underscore that these protests are rooted in an internet video and not a broader failure of policy. By that time, if I remember correctly, we already knew that the Benghazi attack was a terrorist one. As a matter of fact, on September 12th, one day after the attack, at 3.04 p.m., Hillary Clinton called then-Egyptian Prime Minister Hisham Kandil and told him that we knew the attack in Libya had nothing to do with the film. It was a planned attack, not a protest, she said. An account of that call was contained in an email written by State Department Public Affairs Officer Lawrence Randolph that summarizes the call between the two leaders. The email was released by the House Benghazi Committee. And yet, here's Rhodes instructing staff to underscore that the internet video was responsible for the attacks. In other words, Rhodes is a liar. He's a creative writer with crap for foreign policy experience who used his creativity to lie to the American people and to Congress. He lied when he spoke to Congress and the press about the very issues critics of the Iran deal were complaining about in the first place. He defended his lies as necessary to dull, irrational congressional fears of the Iranian government, as if he and the president knew best, better than anyone as a matter of fact. And he lied to the American people in the Benghazi attack. They prepped Susan Rice to tell lies to the media a few days after the attack, even though everyone knew that Benghazi was a terrorist attack and not the result of any obscure, stupid internet video. Now that the Obama presidency is winding down, I do wonder if we're going to get more glimpses into some of the more questionable issues that have plagued this administration. Additionally, as the nation starts to examine Obama's foreign policy over the past eight years, what will it find? Well, nearly 450,000 Syrians have died since 2011 in a civil war that the president did little to slow or stop. Whether you think we should have been involved in Syria or not, there's no denying that the civil war there has caused a lot of difficulties for America's European allies and for our national security. This kind of thing has ripple effects. Iran will receive billions of dollars in frozen assets while making superficial changes to its nuclear program. ISIS is defiant and continues to plan attacks against the West, as its militants bomb European capitals, behead journalists, and sell women as slaves. And Russia is getting more froggy, buzzing our planes, supporting militias that destabilize its neighbors, and menacing the Baltic nations, who are, by the way, also NATO allies. China is militarizing disputed Pacific islands, building military bases in Asia and Africa, and developing aircraft carrier killer missiles designed to defeat America's naval dominance. Overall, as this presidency winds down, a look over the past few years doesn't paint a rosy picture of the administration's foreign policy and what it has created in this world. All right, Nikki. So I understand you're going to be taking a step back from the podcast. Yeah, I've got a bunch of other commitments that I didn't realize take up more of my time than I originally intended. So I need to kind of step back. But you know what? I'll still be around. It's not like you're kicking me off the podcast because you're voting for Trump and I think he's a hairy hemorrhoid. But you will come back on occasion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just a little bit less than I've been doing nowadays. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And it is good to know that there just isn't something new and exciting in foreign policy every single week. Yeah, I think that would be a little volatile and somewhat scary. Yes. All right, Nikki, it was good to talk with you and see you again soon. You bet. Take care. Nikki blogs at thelibertyzone.com. With Nikki taking a step back from weekly podcasting, we've got a new full-time contributor, 
She's a shooter, a trainer, a lawyer, and she comes with a personal recommendation of the princess of podcasting, Gail Pepin. She's Tiffany Johnson in her new segment here on the Gunblog Variety Cast, The Bridge. Welcome to the show, Tiffany. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Tiffany, would it be fair to say that you didn't grow up like me with guns in the house, shooting on weekends with dad? (laughs) That would be extremely fair to say, yes. I fired a gun for the first time when I was probably 23-ish. I hesitate to call it mine an anti-gun household, but we never talked about guns. Nobody ever wanted a gun. Nobody ever used a gun. Nobody ever handled a gun. I certainly hadn't. I learned later that there was a gun in the house, but there was nobody who had any training or knew what to do with one. So what changed your mind? My personal aversion to firearms kept growing and growing as I noticed that every time something violent happened in my life, there were firearms nearby. And so I started mistakenly drawing that correlation. I didn't realize how flawed I was in my logic, but I was thoroughly convinced that guns were a sort of scourge that had to be purged from my life. And so the way I usually deal with fears of mine is to face them. And so what I did in an effort to kind of get some hard facts and a bit of knowledge to justify my aversion to guns was to go and take a basic gun class. I remember when I when I used to con- complain about voting and how frustrating it was to go vote and how the poll workers never knew what they were doing and it was all such a bureaucratic disaster. What did I do? I went and actually took the training to learn how to be a poll worker. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I took the same kind of path with guns and I said, you know, let me just go and learn about my enemy, so to speak. I almost went into it with a bit of a kind of subversive attitude, you know, like, let me sneak in here and infiltrate this class full of, you know, evil gun people and confirm my wildest fears about how awful they all are. And of course, I learned that the exact opposite is true. I was hooked almost instantly. I found that the folks there were really welcoming. They recognized that I was eager to learn. I think my motivations were off at that point, but I was eager to learn, and they recognized that. They took me under their wing. Here I am, 15 years later. Obviously, you don't spend all your time teaching people firearm stuff. What do you do for a living? The short version is I'm a lawyer and a teacher. I practice law in Tennessee, and I also teach legal studies at the University of Memphis. I practiced law in a kind of traditional litigation setting for several years at a big firm before I realized that writing was more my niche. And I ended up writing briefs for lawyers a lot, trading other tasks with them in exchange for writing their briefs for them. And so my kind of claim to fame is legal research and writing legal analysis. And eventually I went out on my own and now that's all I do. I'm a freelance legal writer. Other lawyers call me and I write their briefs for them. So whenever we read all those really neat briefs where you you get all the really cool legal arguments or why this is a good idea or why this is a bad idea and all of the citations and stuff. Yep. That's what I do. It's given me a lot of flexibility, which is what I like. Um, I've never been one, and this kind of segues into what what we're going to be doing with my segment, but I've never been one to really easily fit into any particular cubbyhole. I have to be able to be impulsive, follow my instincts. Freelancing, I discovered, was much more conducive to my personality than anything that would require me to be in the exact same spot at the same time five, six, or seven days a week. So you've chosen to call your segment The Bridge. Why The Bridge? What does The Bridge mean to you? I have found, and it's partly because I am so impulsive, that I've ended up bouncing back and forth between camps more often than I think uh, most people do in modern times. I think it's really easy nowadays for folks to find their kind of wedge in society, in the political discourse, sit there comfortably with like-minded folks and talk back and forth about things that everybody in that group already knows and agrees with. 
I have never felt comfortable with that. I've always been curious about the other side. It's what led me into the practice of law. It's what led me into that gun range that day. It started with my parents. You know, one of my parents is upper middle class and one of my parents is dirt poor and minimally educated. And so it's, it began with that, that dichotomy and I saw the links that could be drawn despite their seeming differences. And everything that I've done I've tended to look for similarities in spite of differences. So with the gun community, for example, we all have our kind of stereotypical ideas of what a gun person is, and I'm doing my air quotes now. And so I instinctively want to defy that stereotype. I want to find all of the folks who don't fit that image and make sure that they understand how much they have in common with the people that they almost never talk to. It's the same way with races. It's the same way with genders. It's the same way with every possible demographic. Um, It's really frustrating to me how eager people are to fly off into their own separate corners and never ever talk to each other. And I'm hoping that through this segment, The Bridge, we can almost force people to see what similarities they have that they might never have imagined. You're reminding me of something that the Yankee Marshal said when he was on the show about how he would show up to a rally and somebody would say something that would just alienate him or certain groups of people who might show up to a gun rally. And maybe we need to think a little bit more about the broader firearms community. And you're going to be the person to find those people that we should be thinking a little bit harder about. Well, I hope so. I mean, I certainly don't want to sell myself as the kind of, you know, one (laughs) token or representative of all of the underrepresented groups. That's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to take on that role. But I do think that sometimes people's intentions are misunderstood because of the gulf that exists between us. And if you know, let's just take race, for example. If you've got a bunch of black folks over here who are not anti-gun, but they don't have the same background as a bunch of white folks over here who grew up around guns, then the white folks who grew up around guns might say something like, they might use a word like sheeple, which I hate. I hate that word. (laughs) They might say something like that. And to a bunch of gun people, that word has instant resonance. Everybody knows what that person means. Nobody is offended by that word. Well, to this group over here, they're completely offended by that. And it's just going to push them farther away when that was never the intention. I find that a lot of times alienated groups are... 10% underexposed and 90% just misinformed. You know, in other words, when you're offended by what something says, that doesn't necessarily mean that that other person is a racist. It could instead mean that that person maybe didn't understand the full implications of the particular words that he or she chose to use at that given moment. Oftentimes, building those bridges is a lot easier than people would think. I could have, when I was growing up, I could have hung out with all my black friends and just been cool with the black people who talk like I do and think like I do and understand what I'm trying to say so that I don't have to concentrate on it. Or I could leave my comfort zone, go over here to groups of folks that I didn't grow up with and figure out how to talk to them in a way that they're not offended and that they understand what I'm trying to say and that as little as possible is lost in translation that's the goal. I think that should be everybody's goal. And as long as we stay blocked off in our separate corners, that'll never happen. We'll always talk past each other or ignore each other. So sometimes it's just as easy as walking up to somebody and just having a conversation. You'd be surprised how much people have in common. I just think there's so much that everybody can learn from everybody. And I know that sounds really lame and cheesy and kind of kumbaya, but <laughs> but um, that that's where I that's where my passions lie, and I'm hoping that that the segment, the bridge, can spark that in a few other people. All right, Tiffany, it was good to talk with you. I'll see you again next week. See you next week, Sean. Thanks. You can follow Tiffany at FrontsidePress.com. I found two really neat magazines while I was there. One of them was neat because of the price. I don't know if they're a retailer, reseller, whatever, but they're called uh, Gamalia, and they were selling magazines made by a company called Amend 2. 
And these are 30-round AR-15 magazines. They are done in a polymer style, like your Promags. They had a bucket of them, and they were selling them for $10 each. And on the one hand, wow, that's a fantastic price. But a lot of people are going, okay, what's wrong with them? I haven't had a chance to take them shooting, but I splurged. I got three of them. And when I was there, uh, one of the people working at the booth, and I've totally blanked on his name. I'm so sorry. He says that he competes in three-gun, and he uses them really heavily because you know, when you're shooting three gun, you're going through a lot of magazines. And he says that he has not had a single problem with these jamming, failing to feed, whatever, because in three gun, if he has to clear a malfunction, he's going to lose. And so he takes this really seriously and I'm inclined to believe him. And so, you know, hey, a high capacity, I guess, I don't know if it's high capacity or full capacity, depending on how you look at it, but AR-15 magazine for 10 bucks, really hard to go wrong there. Yeah, well, hopefully you'll you'll have to you'll have to let us know uh, in the future once you've gotten a chance to use them. Oh, I definitely will. The second kind of magazine is a bit of an oddity, and I dropped by a booth by the American Manufacturers Group, and I'm going to be talking about them for a while because they have a lot of good things. But I walked away with two Glock-style magazines. They're 22 rounds, but they're a nine millimeter. I understand that there is a Glock 22 magazine, but that's in 40 caliber. These are in 9mm, and I got two of them. I got them for free, which is the right price. So even if they're complete junk, I'm not out anything. If they work okay, they're great for the range. But if they work really well, I have made a solid profit, and I'm going to be using these in my Caltech Sub 2000. Oh, that's awesome. So another one that actually the internet was all abuzz on is uh, Nighthawk is now becoming the importer of Korth revolvers. And uh, we sat down with uh, Grant Cunningham, who's helping uh, promote these, and he, uh, he showed us all the intricacies of them. I'm, I'm not going to get too geeky on that. I might actually do that in a, another show. The podcast bicycle. But uh, these things are essentially the modern equivalent to the Colt Python. I mean, they are just the highest quality revolvers that you could ever see. And they've also got a nine millimeter cylinder. They've got one that's designed just to take nine millimeters. So it's got a little short cylinder, a little short frame window. So none of that goofiness you get with uh, pistol caliber revolvers. But the design for how it grabs the rounds to extract them without using moon clips is, I think, really kind of a winner. On the most of the ones I've seen, they're little spring-loaded doohickeys that'll often either break or fail. This one, you drop the rounds in and they headspace on the uh, case mouth like a standard auto pistol. But then when you hit the extractor, it actually extends a little claw that's hardened tool steel into the extractor groove of the uh, of the round and then ejects them. Evidently, they just work the berries and well, they better at the price that they're selling them for. They're quite expensive, but it's really cool. So speaking of really cool, uh, I'm going to go back to AMG for another thing. They are selling a pistol-to-rifle conversion kit for the Glock 17, and they've managed to do it in a way that doesn't run afoul of the ATF. Now, it's expensive. Well, I consider it expensive. It's $300. But the way they do it is, in addition to the buttstock, and it's got the six-position stock like you would have on an AR, but it also comes with a 16-inch barrel. So because you've got the 16-inch barrel, you aren't manufacturing either a short-barreled rifle or any other weapon. Assuming, of course, you put the barrel on first and then you put on the stock. And this is of interest to preppers, I think, because you might want to have in your bug-out bag a rifle but not have the room for it or not have the weight. With this kit... You can turn a regular carry pistol or just a pistol that you have in the bag into a carbine. And that's why they provided the the 22-round 9mm magazines to go into this conversion kit. I'm definitely going to be investigating this. Unfortunately, I don't have a Glock 17 with which I can try it. But I know Oleg got a hold of one. And so I'm eagerly looking forward to what he has to say about that. Last up, I want to close on the one that really blew my mind. So I was walking down the aisle and I saw a booth full of bullpups. And I don't like bullpups. I think they're very, very awkward. 
and they've got terrible triggers, and they're generally just kind of goofy guns. They look great on paper, but they don't play out well. And so I really picked up this one just for the purpose of ridicule. I just picked up the strange bullpup rifle, I racked the action, and I pulled the trigger, waiting to see how mushy and squishy it would be. And it was beautiful. It was absolutely, it wasn't beautiful for a bullpup. It was just an awesome trigger. And so I hauled it around. I said, Ryan, come over here. And so Ken, the proprietor of the uh, booth, came by and started giving us the whole spiel and mentioned that the rifle I was holding was in 308, which happens to be one of my more favorite calibers. So this is the uh, the K&M Arms M17S. It's just loosely based off the M17S by Bushmaster because that was what he started off with was he had one and he decided it was a terrible rifle and he decided to fix it up. And it's really, really impressive. And I may need to get one of these. I'm going to close with just a couple of highlights of things that would be of interest to preppers or people who are just generally cheap. Again, AMG, they've come up with two very interesting kits. One is already available for purchase. One is in pre-production. They have a 22 reloader kit. It comes with a, with a powder measure and instructions on actually how to reload your 22 rimfires. And the instructions include, among other things, a way to make primers from matches. And I had no idea this was even possible. Wow. And it comes with uh, two molds, uh, a long and a short, as well as a crimper. The kit itself retails for $75. If you want to buy their priming compound, that's another 20 and that'll last you for like 2,000 rounds. So for everyone who's into prepping and has a 22 and has heard the whole, you can't reload 22 rimfires, not anymore. You can get this kit. And that uh, that's 22lrreloader.com. I'm going to be talking about that soon. Another thing that's of interest to people who are cheap is that one of my favorite companies in the world, so you'll know that I'm biased here, LaserMax has come up with a pistol laser that will work on any pistol with a forward rail. And while I can't for certain say it'll work on every single pistol, they actually have an adjustable structure on the rails that should be able to fit most widths. And the best part about this uh, the laser, it's called the Spartan, is that if you want the red laser, you can get it for $99. It's not bad. If you want the green, it's $150. So I love lasers, and I love things that are inexpensive, and uh, I'm definitely going to get this to one of my BCP writers and get his impression on it. But the one thing that I really wanted to talk about before we move on to the next segment is... I, I don't have a name for it. It's just, it's a gun. It's by Black Aces Tactical. Did you see this beast? I don't think I did. It, it looks like a shotgun, but it's not a shotgun because it doesn't fit the ATF requirements for a shotgun. So it, it looks like a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, but it doesn't have a stock. Instead, it's got one of those SIG forearm braces. And a pistol grip on it, so it's kind of a pistol. But it's not a pistol because you have to use two hands to to pump it. But it's not a shotgun because a shotgun is meant to be shouldered. And so it is this bizarre, short-barrel, magazine-fed, pump-action, 12-gauge thing that doesn't fit any of the categories. It's not even in any other weapon. It's just a gun. Huh. And, well, I expect the ATF is currently having a fit and trying to revise it. What's, what's the company called? Let me, I want to look at a picture of this real quick. It's from Black Aces Tactical. And so that's uh, blackacestactical.com. And the prices are not cheap. It starts at 1000 It probably goes up to about 2000 depending on what you put on it. But it looks like something you'd see in a video game. Yeah, this thing is crazy. Is this a smoothbore? Yeah. I mean, you and I would call it a shotgun, but legally it's not. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Screw you, ATF. Screw you, ATF. When a bird loves a bee very much. No, that's not it. Look, it's not our job to explain how the baby got in there. There are other podcasts for that kind of information. But once the baby is there, what changes does that make to your gunny life? Our very own mom with a gun, Beth Alcazar, is here to tell you what you need to know. 
Hey Beth, what do you got for us this week? My topic this week is actually pregnancy, or more specifically, pregnancy and firearms. And just to make sure we quelch any rumors right out of the gate, no, I am not pregnant. Our third child was definitely the caboose in our family. The main reason I want to share the topic of pregnancy is because I currently have a lot of friends and acquaintances who are pregnant and they're very curious about how they can continue to carry a firearm, how they can continue to train, and what things they should or should not do while growing a human being. Undoubtedly, when a woman is expecting a child, there are a lot of physical, emotional, and mental changes to take into account. Pregnancy not only brings about a bundle of joy, it also brings about a bundle of changes to one's body. So think about that. As your body is changing and growing, you're going to have to think about different ways to carry that firearm. The holster that you've been using, whether it's an inside the waistband or even outside the waistband holster, could become very uncomfortable. It might pinch, poke, jab, bruise. It might just completely be out of the question. So could you carry in a purse? Well, as we know, there are options, some good options out there, actually, as long as you always have that bag under your control at all times. And of course, for this, I suggest crossbody carry, perhaps like a gun-toting mama's crossbody style purse, or of course, something like the Yukawala that allows you to maybe carry it in a unique or different fashion where it's still close to your body and on your body at all times. Another option that would be great while pregnant could be something like a belly band from Can Can Concealment or The Well-Armed Woman or even the Undertech Undercover Tank Tops. Now, granted, these are meant to be a little bit more like a compression garment, so you might have to get creative. In fact, I've heard of some ladies actually cutting off the material towards the bottom of the tank in order to still wear the upper part. That way their belly is not being constricted and the shirt is not riding up constantly over that growing stomach. Beyond just thinking about how to carry a gun if you still decide to choose to do that while pregnant, think about the fact that a pregnant woman can often feel dizzy or off balance or even get upset for quote-unquote no reason. She can become easily tired or forget those normal everyday things. Part of this lengthy list of challenges are a direct result of the variety of hormones surging through a female's body in order for her to grow a human being. And one of these hormones is called relaxin. Ask any woman who's eating for two if she's ever dropped something over and over again, or if she's ever had problems picking up items or holding them securely. That awkward clumsiness is one of the many badges of pregnancy, and you can blame relaxin for it. The function of this particular hormone is to allow the woman's body to become a bit looser. I know that sounds weird. Relaxin causes the body to relax, literally. And while this hormone can cause some frustrations, without it, any mom would face an even greater task, trying to give birth to a 6 to 10 pound baby while her bones, ligaments, and joints refuse to give. Ouch! Just keep in mind, though, that relaxin can oftentimes cause your balance and your stance to change. It can weaken your grip, and it can cause emotions to get the better of you. I'm not sure I'd want to take any of those things to the range with me, so consider the fact that hormones aren't necessarily welcome while shooting. Another thing to consider is noise. That growing baby is going to be startled by noise or responding to noise probably about the fifth or sixth month. In fact, I had a friend recently tell me that when she was shooting at an outdoor range, As soon as she pulled that trigger and that shot was fired, she had a huge, painful kick come from her baby boy within. So keep in mind that you don't want to startle or potentially hurt that growing baby while in the womb. In addition to that, you need to consider the lead exposure. All those particulates that are getting in your hair, in your lungs, on your clothes, that is a problem that you don't want that growing baby to encounter. So keep that in mind. I would especially be wary of going to an indoor range while pregnant just because your chances of inhaling or being exposed to the lead particulates are oftentimes much greater than if you happen to be outdoors. So what are your options if you can't go to the range? Well, I remember using our laser ammo or our cert pistol and just doing a lot of dry fire training. You can still keep up your skills while you're at home. And even if you can't go to the range and shoot with real ammo, there are things that you can continue to work on as far as your draw, as far as trigger control and trigger manipulation, and as far as getting the gun up on target and getting your eyes focused on that front sight quickly and effectively every time. 
Ultimately, each woman will need to do what's best for her and what's most sensible or feasible for her own situation. But when making those decisions, it's important to keep in mind the whirlwind of mental, physical, and emotional changes that pregnancy brings. As my OBGYN always says, when you're pregnant, don't just do what's best for your body. Do what's best for your baby. And speaking of OBGYNs, of course I recommend the best course of action is always to confer with your doctor before getting involved with any of these activities. That's all I've got for now. So until next time, stay safe and be well armed. You can read more from Beth at usconcealedcarry.com forward slash blog and click on pacifiers and peacemakers in the left sidebar. And now, a word from our sponsor. You know what will happen. If you ever have to defend yourself, you're going to end up in handcuffs. Are you trained to win the fight after the fight? Sure, you can draw, aim, and put two in the ten ring, but have you learned your legal self-defense? Do you know the law? Go to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash variety to sign up for your legal self-defense class. Each class is tailored to the laws in your state. Attorney Andrew Branca will teach you the law, not just what the law says, but what the judge's legal opinions say, what the jury instructions say. Sure, you could risk spending the rest of your life in prison because you followed the advice of some gun store counter jockey, or you could spend the day with the man who literally wrote the book on the law of self-defense. Carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict. Go to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash variety to sign up for a legal self-defense class in your state. And make sure to use discount code variety at checkout to receive 10% off. Hey guys, this podcast runs on your donations. Go to gunblogvarietycast.com and click on the donate or subscribe button in the right sidebar. You can make a one-time donation of any amount or subscribe for as little as $2 a month. That doesn't sound like much, but we pay our server costs monthly. A little help from you is a big help to us. So uh, let's go into people who we met. Well, I got to meet you, my dear. Yes, we got to meet each other, and it was as wonderful as expected. And actually, you were, you were rolling around with, uh, with, with Oddball, who, uh, who blogs with Adam, and, mm-hmm. and I actually had never met him before. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I got to, well, you got to meet most of my pony posse, um, Snooze Button, Ronan, The Jack, and Oddball. Yep, yep, well, I, I, yeah, I'd met, uh, yeah, I'd met uh, Snooze Button, Ronan, because we, we, we were roomies way back in, I think, Pittsburgh? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't met Jack before. And I got to meet Mad Mike, Michael Z. Williamson, for the very first time. He is a hilarious dinner companion, but none of what he said can be reported here because this is a family show oh i also got to uh hang out with uh, grant cunningham and he is as adorable as you would think he's a little revolver hippie <laughs> and let's see even though i had met him before on our way out of town we left uh early sunday because it took us 18 hours to drive back to new england we stopped at the mcdonald's just outside our hotel and there was a, a a van in front of us. I think it was a van. It was either a van or one of those SUVs that look, that's pretending not to be a van. And I heard the person ordering their food. And I went, is that John Lott? And in fact, it was John Lott ordering his breakfast in front of us. Oh, cool. All right. So I have a similar story. So I was in the shuttle that went from the hotel to the convention center. And as you well know, traffic was just a horror show. And so I I was eager to get started because I have no patience. You know, I get in, let's go. Who cares about everyone else? And a guy comes up and he's a a Glock exhibitor. And he says, can you pull around to one of the other entrances and pick someone up? And the driver says, okay. And so we get in and we putter on over. And I'm grumbling a little bit. You know, why can't this guy come out the main entrance like a normal human being? And we pull around to the side and we wait. And no one's coming out. No one's coming out. And the guy is saying, ah, hurry up, Lee, where are you? And I'm getting annoyed. And then the door opens and out comes Gunny, R. Lee Ermy himself. And suddenly 
my mood goes from, I want to get there to, oh my god, it's Gunny. Well, if you had told me it was Gunny, I wouldn't have mind waiting. And he comes in, he gets in the van, and he sits in the seat just in front of me. And I'm trying so hard to rein in the fangirl. Because, I mean, it's like it's 8 o'clock. He's not awake yet. I mean, he just wants to get to the convention and have his coffee and do his job. And I don't want to be one of those super annoying fans who bugs him for an autograph or a picture or whatever. So I just, you know, I offer my hand. I say, it's a pleasure to meet you, sir. You're doing a great job. Shake his hand. He shakes mine. He smiles. Everything's cool. And we try not to make a big deal of it. But as we're driving through the traffic, he starts to kind of grouse about things. And it is just delightful hearing him complain about this thing and that thing. And and some of it was kind of privileged, I think, so I'm not going to say it. I don't want to get him in trouble. Uh, but, <laughs> but it was just interesting hearing the thoughts he had about various personalities at the convention. So this was the one time when I wish traffic was worse. And we could have talked longer because right as we pulled up to the convention center, we had stopped being three strangers on a van and it was, okay, you know, we're, yeah, we're, we're kind of, kind of getting friendly, kind of becoming buds. So, so that was easily the coolest person I met at the convention. He is the sweetest man on the planet. Um, uh, Nancy from excels at nothing. Her daughter has, well, she, I don't think I saw, I don't think they were here this year. But previous years, her daughter had wanted to come to the NRA show every year just to meet Gunny. Did she? Oh, every year. Every year. They stood in line and they would meet Gunny. And, and let me tell you, actually, I, I didn't do it this year. But oftentimes, you walk by the Glock booth and you just see that line going all the way around it. You know exactly what it's for. Uh-huh. But you can walk on the outside of the perimeter and just walk essentially right up to the people shaking Gunny's hand. And just kind of eavesdrop in on the conversation. I didn't do that this year, but I did. I've done it a couple of times that year. And he is just the most adorable thing when it's a young child meeting him. He is just, he suddenly turns into sweet old grandpa. Oh, that's sweet. I I do want to do a very brief shout out to two lovely people. They're actually friends of the podcast. That's right. You met him because I introduced you to him. I did meet him. Yeah. Robert Lugie. And his wife, Shannon, and they were just big, unabashed fans. And I don't know how it was with you, because once I got you talking to him, I knew there wasn't any way I could get in the conversation. But when they talked to me, they made me feel like I was just the smartest person in the planet. And they were asking me prepper questions, and I was just answering, holding court. I talked to them for like an hour, and it felt like it wasn't enough. And so just wonderful people. How did your conversation go? I felt the exact same way. Actually, I, I met a bunch of fans. Um, I, I didn't keep track of all of their names. And and because I'm on so many different podcasts, it's it's one of those like, oh, which one did they, you know, which which ones were they, uh, were, were they fans of? As my wife said when I got back, did you meet any fans? And I said, I met just enough that I was starting to get annoyed when people weren't recognizing me. <laughs> But yeah, no, they were absolutely, they were, they were definitely diehard fans. It was obvious they had listened to every show and paid perfect attention and were just, it's, it is so nice to meet, to meet fans and people say, I really enjoy what you're doing. It just, it, it, it goes that much further to know that, you know what, we're, we're doing a good thing, spending our time talking into microphones. Oh yeah. So, so if you're a fan of the show and you know that you're going to be in a place where we are, let us know. Send us a message on Facebook or email us. We love to meet our fans. I, honestly, I'm surprised we have fans. It was so cool. <laughs> or leave us a review on iTunes. Five star Five review. stars or go home. <laughs> Do you like Siri, Echo, or Hey Google? Well, Baron's back with us after a long time away to tell us about the dangers of those digital assistants in... Tech tips. Tech tips. Tech tips. You are damaging my calm. Tech tips with the Baron. Hey, Baron, welcome back. Long time, no see. In the immortal words of Bender Bending Rodriguez, I'm back, baby. Life is still hectic, but I've reached what seems to be becoming the new normal. That is until the job throws at me another curveball. For those who care and are familiar with normal tech jobs, this one's a little bit different as I will be onboarding new customers about every month, 
and can be working with four or more customers on different projects simultaneously. At the beginning of any new job, you feel like you're drinking from a fire hose to come up to speed on a particular project. This is going to be jumping from fire hose to fire hose continually. Well, since you've been gone for something like a dozen episodes, I bet you got a rant all stored up for us. I'm sure there are a few people in the audience who've looked at various technologies for digital assistants. Digital assistants? You've been gone for 12 episodes or so, and digital assistants? That's all you got for us? Well, there was an interesting article that came out last week, which we'll get to. But yes, I'll give you the four most popular forms. Google has Google Assistant. Microsoft has Cortana. Amazon has Alexa most commonly known as Echo, and lastly, Apple has Siri. You mean those handy things on your phone that can read something off to you, find something you ask for, or even send a text message so you don't have to type? That's correct, and like all tools, there are upsides and downsides to them. The biggest downside is that they all rely on the cloud for voice processing. For those who don't know, doing voice recognition, especially on natural speech, is no simple task. It's amazingly complicated. This is the reason why the big four have massive processing farms just to figure out you ask Siri to find the fastest way home. On a really neat note, though, Google, who is finally now really joining into this game, has added contextual understanding. If you search for someone by name, you can use a pronoun in a follow-up search and still get the correct results. For example, Google, give me all the movies which Brad Pitt has starred in. You can then ask Google, in which movies did he win awards? And Google is smart enough to understand that he refers to Brad Pitt and the list of movies that it came back with. Why do I have a sneaking suspicion that there's a big but coming here? Because it all comes at a cost. With all that data going to the cloud, not to mention you've basically wiretapped yourself. And remember, we've had discussions about the cloud before. It's not exactly the safest in the world, but it's not the most dangerous. It's, it requires a correct level of trust applied to it. And while most devices use a trigger phrase that can be recognized locally, it could still be activated as a microphone recording everything. Now, while this is moving heavily into the tinfoil hat realm, it is known the FBI has had the ability to use cell phones as a wireless bug for a while. Well, it appears this has come to dedicated hardware now, such as Echo. The FBI will neither confirm nor deny whether they are wiretapping using the Echo. Given the way technology works, this is not surprising. They could easily just get it to stream everything it hears constantly out to the internet. Really, this is the problem with these tools. While handy and convenient, the state is more than happy to force companies to play along with their snooping. Well, that doesn't exactly inspire confidence in Echo. Most definitely, though I will say after playing with an Echo, it just isn't that useful. Siri on my phone is always with me and thus the convenience is worth it because she's there. And if I need to lock her up, I easily can. Echo is like a permanent bug you place in a room, and when I played with it, it just didn't seem that additionally useful. Google's newest addition is the one that has me actually intrigued, though, because the conversational aspects allow for more natural speech. All that said, don't expect any of the requests going out through these services to be private. While the companies themselves aren't going to post it, the state is very likely going to have a look, and you know someone is going to try and compromise it at some point, just like IP cameras. Oh, great. So now, not only will I have some perv watching me on my compromised IP camera, I'll have Siri listening in on my pillow talk for keywords, so now they know when to turn the camera on? In the worst case scenario, yes, but really, this is just like any tool. They're not evil, but they're not good either. You need to apply the right level of caution to their use. Thanks for the tip, Baron. It's good to have you back, and I'll see you next week. See you next week, Sean. Baron still blogs at the-minuteman.org. Finally, I got to introduce you to my ammo pimp. Oh. Anthony Welsh from Lucky Gunner. He has provided me with a fair amount of ammunition over the years, and he's just an all-around great guy. You and your friend Ryan talked his ear off at dinner. Oh, man, yeah, we had... Yeah, he was... He was absolutely a sweet guy. And actually, Ryan was a bit surprised. This is actually kind of the first one of these dinners he's been to. I've been to a few of them. And he was just like, I totally expected this to like veer into like business talk. But really, it was just sitting around and just talking shop and just talking about whatever, whatever the conversation went. It was not a sales pitch or anything like that. And uh, yeah, no, he was awesome. And I actually specifically wanted to talk to him for the, uh, the, sh- the show segment I did last week where we were talking about Lonnie Phillips and how she owed them money. Well, she was saying $200,000, but I think it's a little bit less than that. But 
she said she's not going to pay it. We haven't paid and we won't pay. With laughter, which is super sweet. So yeah, so I, I ended up talking to him about that and just the what was the response. And I ended up, uh, I've got up on my blog, I actually asked him for if he could get me an official response from Lucky Gunner on that. And so I have that published up on my blog. So that was just, it was just a, a really fun meeting and then also got to get a little business done. Yeah, and, and we got some inside baseball going on too. Yeah, it was a good time at the show. I think we've got enough time here filled out so that we can now go to bed because I was exhausted from this show. Oh, yeah, it, it was a great show. I had a great time, but I've been gone for like five and a half days and I've got so much to get caught up on. So as much as I enjoyed uh, meeting my friends, hanging out and getting tons of new swag, there's a certain amount of relief when I get home. It's like, ah. <sighs> I can take off all my clothes and run around naked. Oh, my God. (laughs) Do you think you're going to make it to Atlanta? I am definitely going to make it to Atlanta. I live in Daytona Beach. Atlanta is an easy drive for me, and I have friends up there. Yeah, this is my first one since my daughter was born. And yeah, no, I need to get back on the horse. I definitely think I'll be going to Atlanta. Awesome. All right, folks. Well, tune in next year when Weird and I talk about uh, Weird and Aaron go to Atlanta. Well, that's it for the Weirdy and Pony Show. Back to you, Sean and Adam. If you'd like to read more from Erin, check out her blog, lurkingrhythmically.blogspot.com. And in addition to appearing here, Weird is a regular host on The Squirrel Report and blogs at weirdworld.com. That's W-E-E-R-D world.com. Well, it looks like we're out of time, so I guess that's our show for the week. Thanks again to Rob Allen for our music and Firearms Policy Coalition for their support. And thank you for listening to the Gunblog Variety Cast. Constructive criticism can be sent to Sean at seansorrentino.com and hate mail to wizardpc at gunscarstech.com. If you're not already subscribed, subscribe in iTunes for all you Apple users or in Google Play Music if you're an Android user. And make sure to help us grow by sharing this podcast with your friends. Show notes can be found at gunblogvarietycast.com forward slash episode 93. This is a URS production.